Last week I left uh, those of you who were with us uh, with a bit of a cliffhanger, and I told you that today's talk would be so uh, life-changing that if you had a vacation planned uh, for today, that you should cancel it, and that if you had a wedding planned for today, you should postpone it, and if your job was going to keep you uh, from being here today, you should quit your job. And uh, then I thought, what if someone actually does that? Uh, like, like, what if some couple contacted all the people that they invited to their wedding this morning and said, look, our pastor promised that our lives would be changed if we would be at church, so we're going to cancel it, we're going to postpone it for another week. And I realized then that I'd put myself under enormous pressure uh, to deliver. Like, oh my gosh, this better be, like, so good, or Jeff, you could have an angry bride waiting for you when you get finished. And then I got really scared. And then I thought, oh my gosh... Uh, What if I got sick and couldn't speak after I told people to quit their job? Uh, And uh, then I thought, well, you know, if the bride didn't get me, there might be a line of unemployed people that were ready to shoot me after I got done. And sure enough, this morning, somebody came in and told me they quit their job. Not because of this, but they quit their job for another reason. I was so relieved when they told me that. Um, But I meant it. I meant that. Kind of. Kind of. I was, I mean, yeah, there was some sense in which I was joking about it. But, look, I know in this culture it sounds very too extreme to say something. uh, To say that something is happening in church, of all places, could be so important, so life-changing, that it should be a higher priority than anything else in your life. Because most people don't expect anything that life-changing to happen in church of all places. But trust me, what we're going to talk about this morning, which is a continuation of what we talked about last week, this is that life-changing. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in it uh, to the passage that Adele Hemmerlein, by the way, would you give Adele, she read the passage a little while ago, would you give Adele a round of applause? What a great job. Um, Turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. That's what Adele was reading from. It's the passage that we were looking at last week. And since this talk is a continuation of last week's talk, I want to review uh, for just a moment. Hang with me here as I review. We said last week that the motivational structure of the gospel has nothing to do with fear or guilt or shame or anything like that. But the motivational structure of the gospel has everything to do with beauty. We see the staggering beauty of the life of Jesus and the selfless death that he died for the sins of humanity. And we want that kind of beauty in our lives. Like we want to be in a relationship with that kind of beauty. And so Jesus promises that he can change you, that he can turn you into a person of stunning beauty. We said, if you understand one very powerful secret about the gospel found in this parable that Jesus tells here in Mark chapter 4 of a farmer who's out planting seed. And the secret, we said, is that the gospel is like a seed. That's the secret. Understand that. Get that. Get all that's entailed in that. And you will be changed profoundly. And you see this clearly when Jesus explains this parable, starting in verse 14. He says, the farmer, the very first thing is he explains this parable. He says, the farmer sows, and you would expect him to say the seed, but he's saying the, he says he sows the word. Jesus says here in verse 14 that the seed is a metaphor for the gospel word. And using that metaphor, we said, Jesus explains three things to us about how the gospel works to change people. First, we learned last week that like a seed, the gospel has 
It has the power of life in it, okay? It's more than just, the gospel's more than just information. It has the power of life in it. And so when the gospel's planted in a person's soul, it awakens, it enlivens you to a supernatural reality uh, that you didn't know existed before. And this changes you. Remember this, we said it doesn't change you mechanically. It changes you organically from the inside out. So it doesn't change you from the outside in mechanically. It changes you organically from the inside out. Okay, that's what we said last week in a nutshell. Maybe I should say we said that last week in a seat. Okay, so this week I want to show you two more uh, powerful lessons that we learn from this metaphor that Jesus uses of a seed as it relates to the gospel. Here's the second, uh, here's the second lesson that we learn from this metaphor. Like a seed... The gospel releases its power by going deep, okay? Like a seed, I'll explain this, like a seed, the gospel releases its power by going deep, okay? Seeds, you see, release their power only when they go in deep, okay? And I want you to look back at the text in Mark chapter 4, and I want you to see the three soils that don't produce organic growth. Look at verse 4, as he was scattering the seed, okay, again, that's to be a metaphor for the gospel, as he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path, and the birds came up and ate it. So in this soil, uh, the seed doesn't even go in at all. It doesn't go into the ground at all. It's just on the surface, okay? Verse 5, some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Okay, In that soil, you see, the seed doesn't produce life because it didn't go in deep enough, all right? And then finally, verse 7. Here's the third soil. <clears throat> Excuse me. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plant so that they didn't bear grain. The third soil, you see, interestingly enough, it, it does go in deep, but it goes in only at the same level as the weeds and the thorns. And so other concerns are just as important. Uh, Jesus says later as he interprets this, and uh, it chokes out the gospel. Okay, what do all three of those soils have in common? Well, what they've all got in common is a depth problem. That's what they have. It's a depth, depth problem. In every single case, the gospel doesn't go in deep enough. And Jesus says to you and to me, uh, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The point that he's making is that the way this incredible power of the gospel, this supernatural power that is unlike anything the world has ever seen, the way that that incredible power of the gospel is released into your life is by working the gospel deeply into your life. You see... The gospel isn't something that just, it does something to you. It's not, it doesn't do something to you without your participation. You don't just sit back and pray, you know, oh God, come on down and change my life. It's not how it works. You work it through. You work it in. You work it in deep. And the way you do that is through thinking and through reflecting and through listening and through discussing it with other people, and through preaching it to yourself, like we just did a few moments ago as we were praying, okay? 
You preach the gospel to yourself. You remind yourself of the gospel in the good times and the bad. You remind it in, in your successes and in your spiritual failures. And when you do that, you find that the gospel is it's, it's fascinating. And it's gradual and it's sustained. That's how this incredible power is released into your life. Now look, here's, here's my concern for some of you. All right, You come to church... And you hear the gospel much like you go to a movie, okay? So when you go to a movie, like you find out the time the movie is showing, you, you go see the movie, then you leave the movie. If it was good, you know, if it's a really good movie, you might talk about it with your friends that you went to the movie with a little bit, uh, but then you leave it. And a year later, you remember you saw the movie, but you don't really remember much about it, right? And like 25 years later, you don't even remember if you saw the movie or not. In the same way, Here's how some of you come to church. You come to church at or near the time that church starts, right? Some of you like, you know, you like to let the previews go by before you get to the, to the real thing. Um, and I'm not throwing shade at any of you. I just, that's just the way it works, right? Sometimes that happens. And then you listen to the message. And if you thought it was a good message, uh, you might think about it a little. You might even talk about it uh, over lunch with some of your family or friends. And then you go home. And you don't, like, you don't think about it again. And then through the week, you really don't notice much change in your life. Like you still feel enormous anxiety. Or maybe someone at work says something and it, and it really uh, rattles your self-esteem. Or trouble hits you and you panic and you fall apart. And then you run to the self-help section of your bookstore or to your Kindle and you find a book that will help you uh, in handling whatever it is that you're going through. But it doesn't. Not really. Not in a lasting way. And so your confidence in the gospel is like it's very small. And you come to church. Um, when you come to church, it's like a thing that you do. Like if your kids don't have soccer games or if you didn't sleep, uh, if you didn't stay up too late on Saturday night, if you're not too tired on Sunday morning. That's the way some of you do this. And look, you know, again, I'm not... I, I'm, not, I'm not upset about it. I'm not, I'm not trying to guilt anybody. I'm not, so understand, we're not about guilt and all that stuff and shame. It's not that. It's just I'm telling you, I'm sorry, uh, but the gospel doesn't work like that. It, it just doesn't. It, doesn't. it doesn't work like that. The gospel has to be worked in. It has to be reflected on. It has to be thought through. You have to preach it to yourself over and over again. And others have to preach it to you too. Outside of that, you will never experience its power. Never. I've been challenging people that I know lately that if they want to change, like if they want the psychology of their life to change for the better and then ultimately their actions to change for the better, if they want that to happen, They need to find a church, first and foremost, they need to find a church that preaches the gospel. That's the most important thing. Look, not a church that their parents go to. That's not the most important thing. Not a church that they've gone to all of their life. That is not the most important thing. Not even a church that their kids like the programs. That is not the most important thing. I'm sorry. Not even a church that's convenient to go to. That's not the most important thing. They need to find a church that preaches the gospel first and foremost. Not just as a way to start a relationship with Christ, but as a way to live daily after you've received Christ as your Savior. That's the kind of church you need to look for. That's more important than anything else. Now, hopefully, 
it's a church that your parents go to, and hopefully, maybe it could be a church, well, I guess if it's city church, it couldn't be a church that you've been to all your life, but it could be a church that you're going to start going to all of your life. And maybe it's a church, I hope it's a church, I hope we're a church that your kids like the programs, I, I hope that's, that's the case, and maybe it's even convenient to get to. But those aren't the most important things. The most important thing is that you find a church, that you find a church that teaches you the gospel as a way not only to start a relationship with Christ, but as a way to live daily in that relationship with Christ. Because good psychology, you guys remember this? Good psychology, some of you who have been around may know this. So good psychology is good theology made personal. Okay? So you've got to get the theology right if you're going to have good psychology. And then once you find a church like that, and again, I, I hope that City Church can be that church for you, you need to change your whole approach to church. And can I tell you this? I'm not, I'm not talking like a pastor to you here. Uh, I don't think of myself uh, as a pastor. I think of myself as a person that just wants to know Christ and struggles uh, every day just like everybody else. And I'm telling you, this is true for me too. we got to change our approach to church as Christians in this culture if we're going to have any impact on this culture, and if our lives are going to manifest the reality of Christ. you got to change your approach to church, okay? Here's the way it goes. It starts on Saturday night. You ask the Lord to prepare your heart for, on Saturday night, you start asking Him to prepare your heart for what He wants to say to you on Sunday. Do you believe that when you come here that God might want to speak to you? You start asking him on Saturday night, God, prepare my heart for what you want to say to me on Sunday. And you ask him, speak into my life. And then you wake up on Sunday morning and you do the same. Now look, this doesn't have to be an hour-long thing. It can be just a few minutes. Maybe that's where you start, just a few minutes. Lord, speak to me tomorrow morning. Lord, this morning I just woke up. I want to ask you to speak to me today. And then you get to church and you listen to and you sing the songs and you fellowship with people, preparing your heart for what God wants to say to you. And then you listen hungrily and expectantly to the gospel message that's being preached. And look, I'm going to tell you something. For me, I don't know how it works for you. I'm, I'm a very tactile person. So like, for me, that means I, I write copious notes as the person is speaking. I don't even just do them on a, on a digital thing. I write them because for me, that helps me to listen actively to really engage with what's being said, not just passively. So like if I'm just kind of sitting there like that, that's just me passively listening. But if I'm writing, I'm, I'm actively engaged to what is being said. Um, you might notice sometimes when I'm sitting down here, uh, if somebody else is preaching, like if Sean is preaching, and I'm sitting down here, I'm writing all those notes, you might think I'm just evaluating them as a speaker. That's not what I'm doing. I mean, I am really writing stuff down because I want to remember what's said. I want to engage with what is being said. I want God to speak to me. Okay? I'm taking notes because I find it easier for me to listen actively in that way. And then, okay, and so then, after you come and you listen hungrily and expectantly to the message, then you go home and you reflect on Sunday. Yes, on Sunday. Like, you can watch football games, too. I'm not, I'm not, I'm okay with that. God's okay with that. It doesn't matter if I'm okay with it. God's okay with that. You can watch But sometime on Sunday, you take that time, and you just go back over what was said, and you just ask God to, to, to work those in deeply into you, okay? 
That's, that's what it means, you know, like to work it in. And then, starting in September, uh, through our City Life group ministry that we're going to be uh, rolling out in September, you'll have the opportunity to meet and talk about whatever the message was. You'll have an opportunity to meet and talk about it and work it in with a group of people who are also uh, working it in. And then through the week, you take the things that were said, those notes that you took, and you remind yourself of those truths during your devotional time. And you pray them into your life. And through the days, in the good times and in the bad, You work it in. You work it in. You remind yourself. You pray those in. You preach it to yourself. You preach the gospel to yourself. When your boss gives you a bad review, you preach the gospel to yourself. When your kids make decisions that scare you, you preach the gospel to yourself. When your marriage isn't as fulfilling as you want it to be, you keep preaching the gospel to yourself. When you get a raise, you preach the gospel to yourself. When you get a promotion, you preach the gospel to yourself over and over and over again. That's working it in. Now, does that sound like a lot of work? Yeah, it does. Ask farmers if farming is a lot of work. Of course it is. But to the degree that you do that, you will find the gospel releasing its staggering power and beauty into your life. That's what it means to work it in deeply. No change happens easily. No change happens passively. It takes work on your part, and it takes time, but the results are staggering. Listen to my favorite passage of Scripture, Psalm 1. He says this. He says, if you do that, you will be like a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in season and whose leaf doesn't wither. No matter how scorching the weather, no matter how scorching the trials and tribulations, no matter what comes along, you're not going to wither. No matter how bad it gets, you're not going to wither because you're deeply rooted. And the seed of the gospel has deeply rooted itself in your life. There will be a depth to you. There will be an anchoredness, a strength, and a beauty that nothing in this world can shake. But it doesn't happen passively. It doesn't. Hear me. Hear me. There is no other way to lasting change. There are no shortcuts. There's no book that you can read quickly. There are no shortcuts. You have to work it in deep. But if you do, you will never be the same. The gospel releases its power by working itself in deeply. You have to work it in deep. Okay, third lesson that Jesus wants us to see from his comparison of the gospel to a seed. Here we go. Like a seed, the gospel's weakness is its power. Like a seed, the gospel's weakness is its power. Uh, I want you to think about something for just a moment. The Soviet Union, when it wanted to choose an image uh, for itself... You guys know what it shows? Some of you guys know? What was the image? Yeah, hammer and a sickle. Strong. Powerful. Uh, But it doesn't exist anymore. The Soviet Union. And yet the gospel is still alive and uh, working 2,000 plus years after its beginning. 
And what's fascinating is that when Jesus wanted an image to represent the gospel, he didn't choose a hammer and a sickle. He didn't choose iron. He didn't choose concrete. He didn't choose marble. He didn't choose a nuclear weapon. He chose a seed. Just a seed. Something, uh, something so small and weak that it's almost laughable. Why in the world would he choose something so weak? Well, if you think about a seed, if you think about it for just a moment, it has both, it has both a weakness and a strength. And I want to just use an acorn, for example. And if you don't know what an acorn looks like, we have a picture of an acorn right here for you. If it were the right time of the year, I'd have an actual acorn up here, but it's not the right time of the year for this, okay? On the one hand, in that acorn, look at that, just little bitty acorn. In that acorn uh, is everything necessary to grow a huge tree. And then out of that tree could come thousands of other acorns. Do you realize that in that one single acorn right there, do you realize that it has the power in it to cover the entire face of the earth in wood? Do you realize that? Like no hammer, no sickle, no iron has the power to do that kind of thing. Yet at the same time, you could take that acorn and you could put it on the ground and you could crush it and it's just gone. And so there you've got the power and the weakness in this thing at the same time. A number of years ago, a long time ago, an old pastor by the name of G. Campbell Morgan, he once told this very interesting story. He was said he was in Italy once, and uh, he went into a graveyard. It was a tourist attack, attraction kind of graveyard. It was full of very, uh, like very old graves, like centuries old. And there was, there was a grave for a king or maybe, you know, some wealthy guy, and it had a huge, incredibly thick slab of marble, like over the grave, okay? Like it was, it was huge, and it was thick, and yet... Apparently, sometime before that huge, thick slab of marble was laid, uh, an acorn had fallen uh, into the grave under, uh, beneath the marble. Okay. Over the years, somehow, the uh, acorn had, had, it had grown up, and it found a way out of the, like, like one side of the slab. And it got uh, bigger and bigger and bigger. It took centuries. Eventually, it became this huge tree. And over the centuries, the tree had cracked the marble slab and rolled it off into two pieces. Now that, to me, that is fascinating. That an acorn, something that if you dropped it on the slab, it wouldn't have done a thing. And yet, if it goes in deep into the soil, it could do something that like a team of horses couldn't do. Weakness and power. Weakness and power. Why does Jesus characterize the gospel as a seed? Here's why. If you've been following along with us uh, through the gospel of Mark, uh, you, you might notice that up to this point, every single soil that Jesus talks about in this uh, parable is characteristic of somebody's response to Jesus. In the first four chapters. Like the first soil is the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They rejected him. The second soil, uh, the second soil is the crowds around them. 
They're happy with him, but only as long as he's doing miracles. That's really what, they don't want Jesus, they don't necessarily want his message, but they want the miracles. Like start the miracle part of the service, right? The third soil, the third soil. Do you remember what his family thought of him at the end of chapter 3? Do you remember? Like they, yeah, they thought he was, they thought he was crazy and they were trying to take him away. And so the third soil uh, is his family who, like there's great potential there, but they're, they're upset with the fact that they're losing face because of him. In other words, the parable of the soils is not just a parable of how people respond to the gospel, but how people respond to Jesus. And Jesus didn't come as a hammer. He didn't come to judge, but he came to be judged. He didn't come to be strong. He came to be weak and to die. Because seeds, seeds only release their power if they fall into the ground and die. If Jesus had come as a hammer, like we would, uh, we would have all been dead meat. But Jesus Christ came as the ultimate seed. And he says it himself uh, about himself in John chapter 12. He says uh, in John 12, 24, he says, unless a seed, you guys think that this is like some, like when you, when you have read this before, you probably thought, well, he's saying some big spiritual truth. He's not saying some big spiritual truth. He's just saying a fact about life. Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies... It produces much fruit. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus was to go to the cross, he was facing infinite suffering. He was facing cosmic abandonment. He was going to pay the penalty for the sins of humanity. And he looks up to heaven and he says, he says is there another way? And the answer of heaven was, my life can't be released into them Unless you become a seed. Unless you go into the ground and die. And he did. He became voluntarily weak for us. He became a seed that goes into the ground and dies. But you see, that's the secret of the gospel's power. Because the power of the gospel is the weakness of Jesus. When you see him doing that for you, the beauty of his life, the beauty of his weakness... That comes into your life, and that's the power that will change you. Okay? Nothing else will change you like that. No self-help book will change you like that. Nothing that Oprah says will change you like that. Nothing that any philosopher says will change you like that. Nothing that any psychologist will say will change you like that. Okay? Nothing. Think about it. Think about this for just a moment. Let's say that you uh, struggle with, oh, say, let's... Let, Let's say that you struggle with racist thoughts, okay? And sometimes those racist thoughts even become racist actions in your life, okay? Where does the heart of racism come from? Where does it come from? Well, it, it, comes, from, it comes from a fear in the heart that needs to bolster the self-image so that we have to look down on other people. It comes from fear. It comes from an insecurity. Here's what religion would say. Religion would say, stop being a racist uh, or God will get you. That's what, that's what religion would say. Uh, here's what culture would say. Much, very similar, actually, to what religion would say. Culture would say, uh, what you're doing is socially unacceptable. We're going to get mad at you. You're not going to be part of our social group anymore if you keep doing that. 
And the next thing you know, out of fear of rejection, you will adopt an enlightened view of race. That will happen. But in both cases, in both religion and culture, change happens by appealing to your fear, right? Religion and culture want your fear to serve them. And so while they change you externally, the fear at the center of your heart that's driving you, it hasn't changed at all. It's just been kind of rearranged. It's still there. Well, the gospel does something entirely different than that. The gospel challenges you to think about what Jesus did for you. First, he was Jewish. For many of us, okay, for many of us, that's a person of a different race who saved us. Also, he was excluded for you. If you study the gospel accounts of his death, he was crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem. He wasn't even worthy of being crucified inside the gates. He was crucified outside the gates. He was mocked as the king of the Jews, a despised race among humanity throughout history. And the gospel says, look, if he was excluded for you, how could you exclude anyone? And if the person who is the center of the universe loves you that much, why do you need to bolster your self-image by excluding anyone else? Like, what is there to fear if the creator and the sustainer of the universe uh, is in love with you? And you see, that's entirely different the way the gospel does it. The gospel challenges you to look at the beauty of his weakness and to take that into your life and let it capture your heart and let it capture your imagination. And you'll change, but not out of fear. You'll change out of love for Jesus. And as a result, love for people will manifest itself. That's how it works. You take it in. The weakness of Christ is the power of the gospel. And it actually changes you from the inside out, not from the outside in. Do you see? You see how that works? Now I want you to notice that this passage ends on a note of triumph. Because even though three out of the four soils resist the power of the gospel, the last one, the last soil, produces a fruit 30, 60, 100-fold results. And even today's agriculture, with all the technology that we have, can't produce those kinds of results. Why? Jesus is saying, he wants you to understand, it's supernatural. If you do let it in, it's supernatural. Now, I just want to close with this. Let me just close with this. I don't care what kind of marble slab is over your heart this morning. I don't care what kind of addiction is there. I don't care what kind of fear is there. I don't care what kind of alienation is there. I don't care what kind of absolutely loathsome self-image that you have. I don't care what anyone has ever done to you. I don't care how messed up you are on the inside. If you bring this power in and work it in deeply, it has the power to crack and roll that stone slab of marble off of your heart too. To just crack it and to roll it off. Because the secret of the power of the gospel is the weakness of Jesus for you. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, for the cavalier manner with which we treat your gospel. 
Forgive me for the cavalier manner with which I treat your gospel. Lord, I pray this morning that your spirit would prompt uh, people in this room to desire to work the gospel in deeply into their lives. Not just to hear it, not just to believe it as a theological abstraction, but to work it in deeply. Lord, would you change the all of our spirituality? Would you change we do movies we would do it like it is a life-changing resource that you have provided for us so that we can be a city on a hill for the community in which we live Lord Jesus would you transform us and would you forgive us for the cavalier manner in which we treat the gospel Lord Jesus for those that are here this morning Maybe they've never heard the gospel before. Maybe they have. They've never responded to it. Lord Jesus, I pray that today would be a day that your power, uh, that your spirit would speak to them personally and would prompt them to say that, yes, today is the day that I believe that the Lord Jesus is the king of the universe and that the king of the universe died for my sins. And as a result, his power can be in my life, and I want that. Lord Jesus, would you prompt people today to make that decision? And Lord, would you change all of us, change me? Lord, we sang a lyric a little while ago that we would give everything to know you. And I think, man, you know, like if you have just a few bucks, that's not a big deal, but if you have a lot of money, that's a big deal to say, I'd give all of that to know you. Or would you ignite that kind of passion in our hearts and souls? We worship you, Lord Jesus Christ. I worship you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.